0: Work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift. So order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription. And use the offer code THEPAST for $5 off any gift subscription. Well, I don't know. I never really thought about chocolate cake that way. What? Oh, hi! Welcome to The Past and the Curious, everybody. My name is Mick Sullivan. I think we should call this episode Drummers on Singers, because both stories are about singers, important singers, and important moments from history. But both stories are also read by two of my favorite drummers in the entire world. Jason Lawrence from New York is going to read about Enrique Caruso and Meg Samples is going to read about Marian Anderson. Hey, if you like what we're doing, you make sure that you hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform that you listen on. Leave us a review wherever that may be also. Hopefully it's a good one. And be sure to check out our friends at kidslisten.org. It's such a great organization. There's all sorts of great programming. You're going to hear some of our Kids Listen friends on this episode.
1: Listen for the book Power for Kids, kids. Well, all right. Above his mouth, a bushy mustache looked like a big, dark, fuzzy caterpillar. And when he opened that mouth, magic happened. But until now, the only people who could witness that magic were the ones who happened to be in the room with him. Well, perhaps anyone in the next few rooms over, too. And probably anyone walking by on the street could hear his magic as well. His magic was a loud kind of magic. And to be fair, it wasn't really magic magic, but it was special it was his voice. In 1902, the mustached man who would eventually be known as the Great Caruso was a rising star simply known as Enrique Caruso, and he was slowly building a career as an opera singer in his native Italy. Make no mistake, he was pretty great, and he would get better with age, but he wasn't particularly famous, at least not yet. His rich tenor was full and powerful, important in a world before microphones, and his control was incredible. The way he could ring and twist the emotion out of any phrase he sang was breathtaking. It's as if his barrel-chested body was simply made to sing out. Perhaps it was. Many years later, his doctor would write that his lungs were so powerful he could move a Steinway piano with his chest simply by inhaling. He also discovered that Caruso's vocal cords were quite a bit longer than those of a normal man. So it's a fortunate thing that he decided to sing. But all of these natural abilities and years of dedicated practice he gave wouldn't have mattered to us today if not for the other man sitting in that room with Caruso. His name was Fred Geisberg, and he would make Caruso the first superstar of recorded music. Fred had traveled to Milan, struggling to transport his new technological wonder, disassembled and in six different crates. It was not an easy trip, but when he had finally heard Caruso sing in a performance, there wasn't a doubt in his mind that it had been a worthy one. The day before, Fred had sent a telegram to his boss at the Gramophone Company in London. It stated that Caruso was willing to sing 10 songs for a recording, and that the artist had asked for a fee of 100 pounds. Telegrams could be costly to send, and you typically paid by the letter, so his boss's response was short and to the point.
0: Fee exorbitant.
1: Forbid you to record. This was obviously not what Fred wanted to hear, and the idea of walking away was something he simply hated. He believed in the potential of the machine, and believed that people would adopt the technology if they had a reason to. It wasn't perfect. It couldn't replicate sound with anything close to reality. But it could make a recording that would offer people the chance to hear something they'd never heard before. And considering the limitations of the recording, for some reason violins and pianos never sounded full or strong, Fred believed Caruso's voice was perfectly suited to his recording machine. The power, the control, the timbre, range, and natural ease of his melodies, they would sound better than anything else recorded before. So rather than walk away, he took a chance and dug deep. 100 pounds in 1902 was equal to almost $15,000 in American money today. They'd have to sell a tremendous number of records to break even. Nevertheless, Fred decided to pay the opera singer himself, knowing fully that a record had never been sold in those numbers before. By this time in April of 1902, Fred had made many other recordings with his machine. The first was an Irish barmaid with a beautiful voice. He had also traveled to the Vatican, hoping to record the Pope talking. When the Pope canceled, he instead recorded the Vatican choir singing in the Sistine Chapel, The recording machine, however, malfunctioned and caught fire, threatening the beautiful building and the incredible artwork Michelangelo had left on the ceiling centuries before. He was hoping for no such problems with Caruso. The men met at the famous and beautiful Grand Hotel in Milan, reserving a room with a piano. Fred unpacked his six crates and set up his special machine, which was wildly unfamiliar to the singer. When the piano accompanist arrived, they began. Songs had to be kept short. The flat disc that would hold the music couldn't hold very much of it, so just a few minutes' worth was all they would be able to perform. Once Fred was certain the machine had captured the single take of a song, Caruso would sing another of the ten he had chosen. There was no chance to fix anything. Whatever he sang was permanent. So with that, Enrique Caruso looked into the giant cone that would capture his voice, opened his mouth, and let his magic fill the room. Two hours and ten songs later, the first recordings of Caruso were preserved. Caruso collected his payment and immediately spent some of it on a delicious lunch. (laughs) When Thomas Edison first brought his earlier recording device to the public years ago, the music wasn't preserved on a flat disc like Fred Geisberg's. It was on a cylinder with a wax coating, roughly the size of a can of soda. And at the time, Edison didn't really imagine music being its main attraction to folks. No, he thought people would like to use them to keep and hear the voices of notable people and the important speeches they made. That way, you could enjoy your evening with a rousing verse from Queen Victoria's own mouth, a diplomatic speech from William Howard Taft, or even relive the thrill of the Gettysburg Address. Not by Lincoln, of course, but read by someone who was actually there. For the 1880s, this technology was amazing, transporting sound not just across space, but across time. But the machines wouldn't really find their way in many homes at the time. A competitor, a German immigrant named Emil Berliner, later pioneered and marketed the more familiar flat-disc phonograph. Emil also happened to be a mentor to Fred Geisberg. Fred saw this machine show up in more homes, but he knew that was just scratching the surface. If he could get a recording that people wanted to hear, the technology would explode in popularity. Caruso proved to be the key to success. It's reported that these first recordings of the singer sold over 1 million units, easily earning Fred his 100 pounds back, along with enormous profit for the company. As a result, more and more people bought machines so they could hear Caruso. Additionally, more singers, many very notable themselves, immediately followed his example, wanting to release recordings as well. For the rest of his career, which was huge, Caruso was tied to the phonograph, as it was called in America, or the gramophone, as it was called in Europe. The recordings meant that millions of ears all over the world heard him. As a result, he was hired to sing throughout Europe and eventually at the Met in New York City. He continued to make high-selling recordings and was easily the biggest music star of his day. One could argue that all the notoriety and massive success can be traced back to that afternoon in 1902 at Milan's Grand Hotel. If you have deep pockets like Fred, you can still book a night in the hotel's Caruso room. If not, you can just check it out online. And if you hop over to our website, thepastandthecurious.com, we'll post a sketch that Caruso himself made of himself singing that very day.
0: Oh, Caruso, you so crazy. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time, time, time. It's quiz time, it's quiz time, it's quiz time. Yes, yes, it's quiz time again. It's pretty common for songwriters to borrow music from other songs. That's nothing new. Do you know what traditional American song has the same melody as the national anthem of Great Britain? Evidence suggests that the British national anthem, God Save the Queen, was first written down in the mid-1700s. But around 1831, an American named Samuel Francis Smith took that melody and wrote brand new words, giving us, My Country Tis of Thee. The song was an unofficial national anthem before America named the Star-Spangled Banner as the official national anthem in 1931. By the way, that song also borrowed the original melody from a British song, matching it with new words. What's up with that? Question number two. Today, you can turn on a radio and tune in to hundreds of voices being broadcast at all times. But it wasn't always that way. Can you guess when the first radio broadcast of human speech happened? A Canadian inventor, Reginald Fessenden, is believed to have successfully broadcast human speech, which was heard through a radio receiver one mile away, way back in 1900. People disagree on who broadcast the first music and entertainment program, but actually Fessenden makes a claim to this, too. It is believed that on Christmas Eve of 1906, he played music by George Frederick Handel and a violin solo of O Holy Night. As for who was actually listening, we can't imagine that there were very many people. Your last question. The first opera that the famous composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart wrote was called Bastien und Bastien. Can you guess how old he was when he wrote it? Well, y'all, he was 12 years old when he wrote that one-act comic opera, and it is actually said that the piece was written for a man named Dr. Franz Mesmer. Do you remember him? He's where we get the word mesmerize, and we talked about him way back in episode 8 about
2: magic. 75,000 people. That's a lot of people. And there were TV cameras and radio microphones to make sure even more people would hear one woman sing. That's enough to make a lady nervous. And Marian Anderson, one of the greatest contraltos of all time, was not immune to nervousness. This was not like most of her performances, and she knew it. I could not have run away from this situation. If I had anything to offer, I would have to do so now. Those are words she'd later say when recalling that fateful day in 1939. But now looking out at the enormous crowd, she hadn't really asked to be in this situation, but it was obvious that the performance she was about to give could be the most important one of her life. Howard University in Washington, D.C. had recently booked her for a concert. That wasn't anything new. She'd sung there several times before, But since then, she had toured Europe and sung for some of the greatest conductors of the age. Why, Arturo Toscanini himself recently said to her, Yours is a voice such as one hears once in a hundred years. That's quite a thing to say to a poor girl from Philadelphia. But as her voice carried her around the globe, her fame grew. It grew so much that when the most recent Howard University concert was booked, they realized their auditorium wasn't large enough to accommodate all of the people who'd now want to hear Marian Anderson sing, so they had to go to Plan B, the largest auditorium in Washington at the time, Constitution Hall. As it is today, Constitution Hall was operated by the Daughters of the Revolution, an organization for women who can trace their ancestry to someone who fought or worked towards America's independence in the 1770s. The auditorium is not far from the White House in Washington, D.C., and is largely regarded as both a beautiful building and a great place to hear music. It can see an audience of about 4,000 people. Imagine the shock Marion must have felt when she was informed that she would not be allowed to perform there. It was explained to her that a performance by an African-American artist simply would not be allowed in Constitution Hall. That honor was reserved for white performers only. It was 1939, and discrimination was a very real thing, even in Washington, D.C., and even for a world-famous opera singer. It's easy to imagine her feeling anger, frustration, or sadness. Those are reactions many people felt. The First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, was a member of the organization. But not after this. When Marian Anderson was denied the stage, Eleanor resigned her membership in public protest of the decision. In her words, the Daughters of the Revolution, set an example which seems to me unfortunate. The organization had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, but had failed to do so. The First Lady's protest, Marian Anderson's high profile and artistic abilities, and the open discussion of racism got the attention of the public. Immediately, a group set about to organize a performance by Marion at an outdoor concert in Washington, D.C. Successfully obtaining the President's permission, the concert was planned for April 9th. Exactly 74 years before, to the day, the Civil War ended with a Confederate surrender at Appomattox in 1865. And here, in 1939, Marian Anderson took to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Marian was always a snappy dresser. In fact, when she toured Europe, she spent much of her downtime in fabric shops. Her time on the trains and in hotel rooms were often spent sewing her own beautiful clothing. Today was no different, only she had to cover her striking orange gown with a heavy coat on account of the blustery April wind whipping through Washington. Nonetheless, Marian looked out at the lawn to see 75,000 men, women, and children with skin of different colors all together and waiting to hear her sing.
0: In this great auditorium under the sky, all of us are free.
2: Genius like justice is blind. Genius draws no color lines. Those were the words of her introduction. The audience applauded and Marion stepped up to the microphone. The first song she would sing was not from her repertoire of operatic music. My Country Tis of Thee was a song everyone knew And as it rang out through the Lincoln Memorial lawn, a powerful feeling resonated and reverberated in the heads and hearts of the crowd. This wasn't the last time Marion would sing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Mm -hmm. 24 years later, in 1963, Marion was part of the famous March on Washington. Just after Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech, Marion once again faced enormous crowds, this time singing He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. It should also be noted that her relationship with Constitution Hall did not end in 1939. In an official statement, the Daughters of the American Revolution addressed the sad issue. Miss Anderson's legendary concert will always be remembered as a milestone in the Civil Rights Movement. The beauty of her voice, amplified by her courage and grace, brought attention to the eloquence of the many voices urging our nation to overcome prejudice and intolerance. It sparked change, not just in the DAR, but in all of America. Our organization truly wishes that history could be rewritten, but knowing that it cannot, we are proud to note that D.A.R. has learned from the past. In 1943, Marian Anderson would perform in Constitution Hall, and she would again in 1964. The second time was the date of her American Farewell Tour, the last tour before her retirement. She lived most of her retirement in a farmhouse in Danbury, Connecticut, It is said she insisted upon being treated as a normal citizen and not a celebrity by the townspeople. She waited in line at the grocery and in restaurants, dismissing the notion of any special favors ever the performer though. She would still sing for some little town celebration every now and then.
0: Now, before the song, this episode, I want to say a very special thank you to our friends from book power for kids. That would be Chaska, Mirabelle and Leilani. You heard all three of them in this episode. That was exciting. Uh, Now, we're going to play you because there's no way that we could top Marian Anderson. And I'm not going to try to sing like Marian Anderson. I'm not going to find somebody to try to sing like Marian Anderson. I'm just going to play that Marian Anderson recording for you. And while you're listening, see if you can spot the subtle way that she changes the lyrics. Maybe ask why she did that.
2: Dismissing the notion of any special flavors. Flavors. (laughs) flavors, I'll have this Pomoni.